Fighting Through, Episode 19. International Podcast Day Special, Part 2. More great unpublished history. Welcome back to the Fighting Through Podcast, International Podcast Day Special, Part 2. Thanks for joining me again. I've got some great bits and pieces lined up for you and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, finally, we're getting to D-Day. I'm going to start this section with a poem from uh, Company Sergeant Major Douglas Gray of the 7th Green Howards, which was... uh, Dad was in the 6th Green Howards, so they were in, in the same brigade. I'll explain how I got this poetry later. Yes! It's four years today since we left France, in a very undignified way. But four years has made a big difference to us, and now our debts we can pay. A long time we've waited for D-Day. All preliminary work has been done. And once more the task is more than plain. Clear Europe and banish the Hun. My dad expressed his feelings in a less poetic but no less meaningful way. In the spearhead, there were young men from all over the British Isles. I knew that the brave Canadians wanted to avenge Dieppe and that the American boys needed to see that the war with Germany came to a conclusion so they could settle their outstanding account with Japan over Pearl Harbour. They would give their all, every one of them and whilst sharing such dangerous experiences would create an enormous bond of comradeship. I can't really explain the feeling I had when I saw just a fraction of the massive power that was going to back us up when we invaded. I felt proud to be British. I say British because although I'm a Yorkshireman, I came into contact with some tremendous characters amongst the Welsh, Irish and of course the Scots who were very often fighting alongside. So uh, here's a passage from, uh, well, this is just a very small part of Dad's D-Day coverage in his book. And uh, this starts off with him in the ship going over the uh, English Channel to get to France. On the morning of D-Day, Ravelli was about or 3.30 hours. The tonneau came to life to order us aloft. It was becoming a bit claustrophobic in our quarters and we needed the fresh, salty air. We were breathing the dawn of a new day into our lungs. Many of us had been on deck for a few hours already, watching the flashes coming from the French coast. The paratroops had been about their fighting for three hours, holding the left and the right sides of the proposed beachhead, and the bombers were engaging the coastal batteries, though not very effectively as the early morning was misty. At 0500 hours the ship heaved too. It was just starting to become light. We were now standing waiting for further orders, almost weighed down with equipment ready for the fray. Suddenly, come on lads, let's go, from our officer, reminded me very quickly why I was there. It was time. I found myself with my leg over the side of the ship, trying to get a footing onto the scrambling net. I'd fastened the mortars and bombs onto my equipment, and my number two on the mortar was alongside me. The practice we'd done for this day was nothing like the real thing, and trying to get a foot onto the landing craft was beset with danger. The sea was very rough, and there was a three-foot rise and fall of the craft against the side of the ship. It was a hair-raising experience, but luckily nobody suffered any injuries. 
Somehow we made it and pulled away from Empire Lance and then waited until all the assault craft were in line abreast and the order came, Craft away! There were fourteen assault craft to land on Gold Beach with thirty men in each. We were only seven miles from our objective. The run-in was to take two hours and our H-hour was 0725 with the Americans on our right and because of the differences in the tide they'd started their invasion at 0630 hours. God help us lads. The sea was very choppy but as the mist began to clear and the light was improving the whole mighty operation became visible to us. And what a sight it was, something nobody had ever seen before. The mind could not absorb the enormity of it all. There were thousands of ships of all sizes, and standing out like huge sentinels, the mighty warships, in fact almost 7,000 ships in all. Shells started coming towards us, but the enemy seemed to be going for the ships, not us, and they created great spouts of water when they hit the sea. The gunners hadn't found their range yet. Now we could see the bombs falling from our planes and fighters, skimming low above the enemy defenders. The continuous thundering was never-ending. We were about two miles from the coastline, Rommel's Atlantic Wall, when on our port side we saw something which we'd never seen before. It was a rocket ship, about half a mile away from us, and it was firing a massive, continuous barrage of missiles, screeching simultaneously, dead straight, towards the coast. We could hear, almost feel, the heat generated by the displaced air. Hell, we said, fancy being on the end of that lot. It was fantastic, and the bombardment was something the enemy could not have imagined it was possible to be on the receiving end of. We could hear the rumble of war as the planes dropped their bombs. Warships were shelling the fortifications, and the sound of the shells flying above us was uncanny. Great flashes were coming from the gun barrels and lit the morning sky. The battleships were firing their salvos of shells, which we could hear screaming above our heads. And above them, the planes. A never-ending stream of planes of all sorts was going to bomb the communications inland, so the Germans could not send for reinforcements. It seemed to be a hell of a long way to the beach. Then I saw a landing craft next to ours slow down. A bullet must have hit the helmsman. Swiftly, somebody took over control, but the boat was now a little out of line with the other assault craft, and in the blinking of an eye, the front of the boat had been hit by a shell or a mortar, or probably a mine. The explosion lifted bodies and parts of bodies into the air, and the stern of the craft just ploughed into the sea. All those boys, laden with kit as they were, didn't stand a chance of survival. There was so much happening now, and so swiftly. Every second was vital. Let's get out of this coffin. We were getting so near now, and felt so helpless, just waiting for our fate one way or another, and at that time we were keeping our heads down. Enemy shells were now landing on the shoreline, and machine-gun bullets were raking the sand. Then, at the top of his voice, the helmsman shouted, Hundred to go! Seventy-five to go! Already fifty to go! He was now fighting hard to control the craft, avoiding mined obstacles showing above the water as well as the ones just beneath the surface. Twenty-five yards! And suddenly, ramp going down, now! And the craft stopped. 
stopped almost dead in three feet of water, and our own platoon commander shouted, Come on, lads, and we got cracking. This was no place to be messing about. Get the hell out of this. Jumping off the ramp, we went into waist-deep water, struggling to keep our feet. I was trying to keep a very cumbersome two-inch mortar and bombs dry, as well as making certain I didn't drop it. Some of the lads were shot as they jumped. Two of them were a bit unfortunate because as they jumped into the boiling water, the craft surged forward on a wave and they fell into the sea. I dare say they'd fight like hell and recover, but we were not hanging about. That had been our instructions from the start. We must not linger. Our adrenaline was now at its peak, and every one of us was aware what he had to do. At the moment there was no actual fighting to be done as there was no visible enemy, but we had to get off the beach and forward in order to come into contact with the enemy, because some were hidden in their positions. Our primary concern was to get out of the sea. Onto the soft sand and the boys in front and behind of me went down. Hell, get moving! Listener, if you want to find out what happens to Dad next, you'll need to buy his book, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. Thank you. Listener, I'm now going to continue my International Podcast Day special D-Day coverage with Brian Moss, whom we met earlier. He too landed on Gold Beach. We pick up as he approaches the shore, a little later than Dad. The engine slowed, and suddenly the craft bumped on the sand. We'd arrived. Down went the ramp with a crash, and the armoured doors flew open. Immediately a burst of automatic fire crackled in just above our heads. No one was hit. With a yell, 2nd Lieutenant White sprung to his feet and jumped out into the knee-deep water. To our surprise, he disappeared from sight. He'd fallen into a shell hole, obscured by the water. Two stalwarts reached down, seized his shoulder straps and threw him up onto the beach, after which we all charged out. On reaching the sand, I turned half-left and aimed directly for the end of the sea wall. I glanced behind me. The bulk of East York's troops were beginning to arrive and these men were running straight up the beach. The machine guns tore into them. Above the crackling in the air I could hear the dull thuds of bullets striking bodies, reminding me of the noise made by a carpet beater hitting a damp carpet hung out on a clothes line. I ran as fast as possible, threading my way between the beach obstacles. As I flew along I felt no fear. I must have been burning up all my nervous juices as fast as they were being secreted. In front of me, a bundle of old rags raised its weary head from the sand. It was Johnny Halliday. Landing just before me, Johnny'd been hit. Contrary to orders that said we must stop for nothing, I did stop and bent down to look at him. There was a small wound in the top left of his shoulder. It could have been a superficial wound, but if it were a bullet obtained when he was lying down facing the enemy headlong, then it would likely have penetrated his whole body, and there'd be no hope for him. All I could do was give him an encouraging word before I raced on, quickly getting into top gear again. I never saw Johnny again, and my attempts after the war to trace his fate were unsuccessful. Within a few yards, I was surprised to meet two screaming naked men making for the water at high speed. They were hairless, burned bright blue, and wore only smoking boots. 
I assumed they were a tank crew. We passed on opposite courses with never a second glance. I then picked my way through a zone where many bodies lay. These were evidently machine gun victims, in numbers approaching an entire company. This would have been the left-hand assault company, men who'd landed just before us and had felt the full fury of the enemy defence. I sped along, dodging and ducking, the grenades swinging madly in my pockets. There was no sign of two platoon at all. I wondered if they were sheltering behind the beach obstacles somewhere. Steel helmet bouncing on my nose, I covered the last few yards and collapsed on the sand next to figures in khaki under the sea wall, panting like a dog. I was shocked to see only half a dozen men there, just the Yorkie CSM and a handful of his men. Where'd our invasion gone? Where was two platoon? Where was our officer? Glancing along the beach, I could see no one else on their feet, only the dead and the dying. There were a few figures scuttling about in the distance, but that was all. The CSM threw what I realised was his last grenade over the wall, so I pulled out a couple more from my pockets and handed them to him. Good lad, grasped the CSM. Let's give him some more of these buggers. And he sent them <laughs> He sent them over the wall. I hurled my other two grenades to join them. I also gave the housetops a squirt from my sten gun, not because I saw any particular target there, but it seemed the right thing to do. Enemy fire from the casemate was still pacing the beach. Despite our grenades, its machine guns were firing continuously while the 88s slammed out round after round. Neither we eight men at the seawall nor the enemy in the casemate could fire directly at each other. If we were to peek around the end of the wall, we'd surely get our heads blown off. The grenade was the only weapon that stood a chance of penetrating a doorway or other access point. The few East York's lads were tight up against the bottom of the wall. I moved a few yards back trying to see over the top. Heavy calibre stuff was now dropping on the beach to the west. I turned to look towards where the shells were dropping and was suddenly felled by an almighty blow on the left shin. I found myself kneeling on my left knee and remembered having seen a mortar burst not far away. I knew I'd collected a mortar fragment. There was no immediate pain but it gradually built up to the kind of feeling you'd expect to experience if someone hammered a six-inch nail into your shin bone. And breathe, listener. I'm now going to jump forward a week in time to pick up Doug Gray's memoir on Normandy. Doug Gray wrote a day-by-day diary of his Normandy adventures. I first heard about him from his son, who's also Douglas. So, this is a passage from the actual Normandy diary of Company Sergeant Major Douglas Ernest Gray, 7th Green Howards. All these boys were in the same 69th Brigade and all landed on Gold Beach. The narrative's quite detailed and as a whole the diary portrays a real adventure. 10th of June 1944, Saturday glad when daylight came, everybody on edge and badly in need of sleep, averaging about four hours a day. Changed the position of two of my guns and was fired on by one of our own, but otherwise fairly quiet all morning. In the afternoon the mortars came up to have a shoot. Oscar Topham set fire to a house in the village with one Spandau and eight jerrys in it. Don Walkington's section came up to relieve me at 1800 hours. 
and I was more than glad to see him, and all the time there was a feeling of closeness to the enemy, and yet you couldn't see a damn thing. Pulled back to battalion and could see by the stuff that was flying over that Don was having the same sort of night that I had. 11th of June, 1944, Sunday. We're at it again, battalion putting in an attack on Brunei at 1400 hours to try and help out the Carnads. And what a bloody shambles, good lives being thrown away, casualties heavy. Had to go down and get D Company and nearly had it again. Carrier broke down under heavy machine gun fire and had to strip the carburettor down. Carrier was hit a few times. D Company lads all got out okay, but they've had it. We've been at it all this time without a break. Tiny Butler sniped. Battalion consolidated in wood as I go out with my section and Westy's anti-tank gun on outpost. Uneasy night as quite a number of Bosch in the area. 12th of June. Still in the same position on the watch all day for Jerry patrols which are trying to infiltrate past us. Managed to get an hour or two's sleep. Spandau's pretty active again. Another uneasy night. 15th of June. Up to now I haven't mentioned the RAF much but they are certainly doing a fine job of work and it's very morale lifting to see them up above all this time. Moved forward just behind the 231 Brigade and got briefed for the following morning's attack. Don't like it and I bet we drop a clangor. Buried a couple of Hampshire lads who'd stopped one well and truly. 16th of June Strengthened Day Company front with our Brens. Nearly copped us that time. In a cottage with CO Captain Murray and the Brigadier when Jerry whipped a tank up and let bang at close range. Brigadier wounded and two killed. But my luck held out again. Wish I could stop a cushy one. About time they brought a fresh division in as our lads have had it, but they still stick in. Bread hell out of us all night. Very few old lads left now. 17th of June. Took over from the East Yorks and once more we tried to push forward, but it's sheer suicide. The country's absolutely rotten with snipers and spandows. The lads have had it and they'll have to pull them out. My section take over A Company's position while they try to advance. Did we get hammered? But we had to stop there. Poor old Topper runs into a spandow and gets five bullets in him. Marvellous piece of work by an officer getting him out. Doc thinks he might pull through. Hope so, he's the best sergeant in the battalion and hates Jerry's more than anyone on account of him seeing his brother killed next to him at Wadi Akarit. At it every day since D-Day with only one break and still no sign of any relief. I thought we were going to be the assault division and after that we'd finish but it looks as if we're going to get all the shit again just as it was in the desert. But we've got to keep going and something will turn up but God knows what. 23rd of June Things pretty quiet this morning. Watched about 50 marauders go over to bomb Khan and saw one come down in flames and another hit. Still, good show. A shifty kipe's just been over and Jerry tickled him up with a spandau, but he misses him every time. We've picked up a thoroughbred Alsatian for a mascot, christened him Monty. Good sentry, but terribly bomb-happy. Who isn't? 2nd of August Listeners, we're fast-forwarding a month or so now because uh, this is Military Medal Day, if you like. 
This was written by Doug on the day he won a military medal when he didn't even know he'd won it. Here goes. Hello, an attack coming off. Moved out 1400 hours and led the column to the start point. We're attacking a high feature of Amai sur Seuil, about 5 kilometres away. Our carriers are to advance with tanks and fire everything we have in support while the boys come up with the main attack. Phew, what a do. We got there okay and into positions when Jerry opens up with all he's got. Spandaus and mortars, dozens of them firing at us at point-blank range. Bill gets it, a bullet in his shoulder and out of his back. Joe Garbutt did a marvellous show getting him out under a very heavy fire on his motorbike. D Company arrived and we're pinned down for quite a time, but we finally won through with a final bag of 117 prisoners including six officers and quite a number of Spandaus and mortars captured. He then took up positions on the left flank looking north and were subject to heavy fire all night. Listener, this is just part of the official citation that went with the above action. Um, The action of Sergeant Gray and his section was an inspiration to the whole platoon, and the covering fire support given very materially assisted the whole battalion plan of attack. Throughout this action, he showed a high standard of leadership, his courage and lack of concern for his own safety being quite outstanding. Well, that was a great diary, and there's lots more of it if you'd like to uh, listen to the relevant podcast episodes, or if you prefer to read it, it's uh, all there in the show notes at the website. Okay, danger, unexploded bomb. This is the story of one man's brave war against unexploded bombs in wartime London during the 1940 Blitz. This is Brian Moss again, the platoon sergeant in the Royal Engineers, and uh, it's episode 13. This is the guy who would later clear the tank ditch at the Battle of Wadi Akarat in 1943, which you've already heard about. His book's never been published, um, but I know it will be one day. It's been very well written, there's a lot of material in it, and Brian's son Mike has created a collection of excellent pictures, maps and diagrams which goes so well with the narrative. For now, listener, all I can do is share as much with you as possible without giving you the whole book. Mike, uh, the son, is a Leicester man from England and now living for some many years, I believe, in Canada. So here we are in 1940, at the start of World War II. We were put on a train bound for London. We arrived during the night of 17th September in the middle of a savage air raid. Shells were bursting in the sky above us. That night I slept at number 45, Twyford Avenue. I was billeted in a downstairs room at the rear, along with some 30 other men. The lawn toilet at the end of the corridor outside was busy all night, while bombs fell and anti-aircraft guns thundered all round us. The next morning... We were paraded in the street in front of our billets and marched to Talkington House. Here, the Commander Royal Engineers addressed us. During the last 24 hours, said the Colonel, 1,000 unexploded bombs have dropped in London. They have a new type of electric fuse which we know very little about. 
You'll be issued with axes, picks, shovels, ropes, handsaws and rubber knee boots. Go to it, men, and good luck. We were to be known as 719 Bomb Disposal Company. Untrained as we were, bomb disposal was to be our job. I would unscrew the cap of a fuse chamber, then hammer and chisel into the TNT and smash out half a dozen fragments of it. Then I'd put an oily rag into the broken fragments of TNT and ignite it. The TNT would burn noisily with a black oily smoke. One day I realised that a booby trap could be cast into the TNT filling and I never burned out a bomb again. Later we heard that casualties had often occurred in this manner. When I think of the things I did in those days, my blood runs cold. It was not only myself I was... It was not only myself I was exposing to danger. Alternatively, we could dig out the bomb with the fuse still inside and take it intact to Hackney Marshes for destruction. After several trucks dis- <laughs> after several trucks disintegrated en route, I shouldn't laugh. Sorry. Uh, this practice was no longer favourably regarded. Another solution was to evacuate the neighbourhood and blow up the bomb in situ. My own experience included all these measures. One day I opened a fuse chamber that was empty. All it held was a folded piece of paper bearing a note written in a language I didn't understand. I handed it in and was later told it was a message from a Polish worker apparently enslaved in a munitions factory. My Section F operated in the London area along the North Circular Road from Ealing as far as Harrow. Our vehicles were brightly painted a post-box bright red colour. Everyone made themselves scarce when they saw us coming. We might have been carrying a ticking bomb on board. We worked from 7am to 5.30pm. At night the lads got polished up and went downtown. There was only one cinema in Acton. The film changed on Thursdays and I would make sure I was in the cinema early. Usually a slide would appear over the film. The air raid warning has just sounded. (laughs) No one took any notice. It was the same every night. At the end of the film I would emerge into pitch black streets illuminated only by gun flashes. One night I saluted the bus conductor by mistake. His white cuffs looked like a rear admiral's braid. Leaving the, cin- <laughs> Leaving the cinema, I'd turn right and start walking back to Twyford Avenue. Listener, I'm sorry if I keep laughing occasionally, but uh, this is a massive episode and uh, I'll be here all month if I keep stopping and correcting every little tiny error, as I so often try to do. But I hope you'll bear with me. Back to the script. As I recall this... I'm taken back to a typical bombing raid. A spot of yellow light suddenly appears in the sky. It disappears. Then it reappears, somewhat brighter. It's getting bigger. A second yellow light flares up in the sky, half a mile from the first, then a third, and then a fourth. The string of flares produced a sickly yellow glow for Acton. The enemy's target is Park Royal again an industrial area. A bomber approaches, its engines making the sound um 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 Suddenly, I'm startled out of my wits by the flash and crash of a 3.7 battery that I didn't even know was just beyond the park railings. 
the shells go rumbling up into the heights and explode faintly. Spat, spat, spat. Then comes the long, indrawn breath of an exploding bomb. I crouch at the side of the road, and although I know the bomb has exploded, I can't be sure I heard it. The guns crash again, and I curse them because they seem so futile. I turn into Twyford Avenue, tripping over someone lying on the ground, and I hear the shell fragments spinning down from the heights and bouncing on the road. Twyford Avenue doesn't look the same as it did when I left to go to the cinema. One of the houses has been demolished, and it's now a black, shapeless mass lying halfway across the road. A broken gas pipe flares in the wreckage in which rescue men work patiently. The flares are lower now, and the wind has brought them nearer. The first one dropped is very low. In fact, I can see its parachute above, illuminated by the flare. A gob of liquid fire drops away, and now there are only three flares in the sky. A red glare suddenly erupts over Park Royal. I nip smartly into number 45, and surprise, surprise, everything's going on as if nothing had happened outside. Some men, even at this time, are preparing to go downtown. They won't be back before dawn, and I make a mental note to look out for them on first parade. I retired to bed early one night. I was sleeping in the kitchen at number 45 when I woke suddenly and looked at my watch. It read 9.45. Then I heard the bombs coming. This is it, I thought. The awful shriek came closer and closer. The house heaved, and in the darkness I put out a hand to hold up the wall I knew would come crushing down on me. Listener, at this point, I'll end the passage but not before I share with you an outtake that I just can't resist sharing. I think uh, hearing and reading so much army toilet humour has worn unto me. And uh, here's a little extract from a... It's an outtake from when I first recorded this, when I actually did the podcast episode. The lone toilet at the end of the corridor outside was busy all night while bombs fell and anti... And anti- <laughs> and anti-aircraft guns thundered all around us. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine that scene. Oh, God. And there, listener... <laughs> sorry. And there, listener, I'll stop. There's no convenient pause in the pace of this story, so if you want to find out what happened next, you'll need to tune into episode 13, Danger, Unexploded Bomb. There's a list of all the episodes at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. Just click on the great big button on the homepage. They're easy to find. Or just look up Fighting Through Podcast on your usual podcast player. Over now to episode 14 and my beloved Lancaster Lily Mars. Uh, This podcast episode was called The Last Flight of Lancaster Lily Mars. It's the story of Lancaster bomber LL678, together with its courageous crew, including my dad's best pal Don Savage during World War II. At the time war was declared in 1939, I was on a camping holiday with three pals. 
Our site was on lovely farmland at Crediton in Devon, England. One of the boys was Don Savage. He was only 18 and a grand lad and we'd been good friends. He was a splendid scholar at grammar school and when he left he joined the RAF becoming an air gunner on Lancaster's. Well, listener, that's about all I knew about this pal of Dad's, but because I'd mentioned him on my website, one day the Savage family tracked me down, and as a result I found out so much more about Don and the whole poignant story about the aircraft and the fate of the crew. I eventually made this story into a podcast episode, and it was probably the hardest to do, because there was a massive source of stories coming out of the woodwork from all over the place, including, well... I don't want to tell you now because that would spoil your listening to episode 14. However, I can tell you that I do now have several cherished photos of Don and the Lily Mars. How good is that? This part of the story is from a magazine article written about the flight by Christopher L. Stewart called A Shot in the Dark in Flight Journal magazine from 2001. So, early hours of 13th of June... 1944. The crew tense when Roy calls crossing into Germany over the intercom. They're on schedule to drop their bombs on the Pathfinder's flare at 0110. So far the trip has been pretty routine, but as they travel further into Germany, the excited chatter over the intercom dies. The Ruhr basins lit up like a Christmas tree with searchlights. It's so bright that flight engineer Jerry needs no lights to read his checklist. As they approach the target, they drop their load on the bomb-aimer's mark and there's a sense of relief. They're now free to get the hell out of there. They turn north to leave the target area and lights. In a few minutes they will be out of Germany and racing towards England. They look forward to the cup of coffee that's customary after they've safely crossed the channel. Crossing into Holland! exults Roy over the intercom. But suddenly, they're startled by loud thuds and see traces going through the engines. Lily Mars shudders and the smell of explosions fills the cockpit. Bertie struggles to keep the plane under control and Jerry glances at his gauges, but there's nothing he can do. The Lily Mars is dying. Bail out comes the order from Captain Bertie. Jerry can't believe this is happening. He grabs for his chute. He helps Phillips attach his chute and then something terrible happens. While pulling it on, Phillips accidentally pulls the ripcord and the chute opens inside the plane. Jerry tries to help but quickly sees that it's hopeless, so dives between Phillips' legs for the open hatch through which George has already jumped. As the rush of cold air hits his face, he immediately pulls the ripcord and welcomes the jolt as the canopy opens wide. I've made it, he thinks, but then watches in horror as Lily Mars crashes into a Dutch cornfield with at least four of its crew. As Jerry floats towards the ground, he takes off his headset and lets it drop. As he lands, he quickly gets his thoughts together. He catches a movement and freezes as a pair of dark figures approach. Who is coming, he wonders, and thinks about dropping his chute and reaching for his sidearm. A voice calls out, Are you English? Hesitantly, Jerry replies, Yes. So listen to tune into the episode itself if you want to find out what happens to Jerry and the rest of the crew 
and the Lily Mars. And now I want to share with you a letter which pilot Bertie de la Cour sent to his parents before the mission, um, because it's a lovely letter and uh, it's very sad too. Bertie de la Cour was the pilot on the plane. He was Australian and uh, sadly he died on the plane. And uh, before the mission, he'd sent this letter to his parents. So here goes. Dear Mum and Dad, I hope you never get this, for if you do, it means I did not return from the operation I'm about to set out on. I've no feeling of premonition, nothing at all, but the reason I'm writing this to you is an expression of gratitude to you, which I want you to know I feel very much. I've often wondered how it was I was so lucky to be born to such parents as you and Dad. No other mother or father in the entire world could have been so good, kind or understanding, or, to sum it up in one word, so grand as you have been to all of us. Together, such parents in this whole wide wicked world could ever be found. Do not grieve over me too much, Dad and Mum. Oh, I know you will grieve, and the pain in your heart will burn badly for a while. But please remember, I've died the way I've always wanted to die, the way countless numbers of other fellows are dying every day in this world. I am merely your contribution to a better, cleaner, freer world. May you obtain that world, Mum. And remember, it's you who are left behind who are the real heroes, not us who will die. It's you who will bear the sacrifice, so grin and bear it, and remember that famous motto, that time heals all wounds. Yes, time will erase that burn from your heart. You and the family shall know that what you suffered was, after all, just a minor affair, an everyday happening in the world. I can't express here how much I love you, Mum and Dad, for it's beyond all comprehension. I hope Edna, Alma, Myra, Stanley, Betty, John, Alan and Graham all grow up to have happy, successful lives. I'll not say goodbye, Mum, for it's not goodbye, and one day we shall all again be reunited in a much better land than this. So I'll only say for the present... Lots of love to you all, from your loving son, Bertie. I asked Bertie's nephew Shane, how did Bertie's family turn out? And Shane replied as follows. Bertie's got three brothers and three sisters still alive. My father Alan passed away last August. All have led long lives and are very nice, down-to-earth people. Bertie would be proud and hopefully is in a better place with his mum, dad, my dad, Edna and Alma. I'm now going to turn to the Battle of Gallipoli in World War I. This is my most recent episode and it's somewhat out of kilter with the rest of the series because it relates to World War One, not World War Two, But the reason I wanted to cover it is firstly because it's an absolutely cracking memoir, and secondly because the man who wrote it had so bravely risked his life in 1915 at the vicious Battle of Gallipoli, and then went on to sail on the little ship the Bee at the beaches of Dunkirk, rescuing the so-called unrescuable from the bomb-strewn sands. How good is that? The narrative from the Gallipoli episodes was both brutal and breathtaking. Here's an extract which is about the amphibious landing by the British at Souffle Bay in August 1915. 
A hail of machine gun and rifle fire swept through us. Men slumped across the oars. Now it was a case of every boat for itself. The Turks had placed barbed wire just under the water, and boats stuck fast, and its men soon wiped out. My boat was lucky to find a gap through which we passed to the beach, and we scrambled out. Our machine guns were to follow us in after a landing was made, so I had my section with just rifles. Other boats were getting through, and I gathered my section, and I'd only lost two, and sheltered behind some rocks until we could establish a line to go forward. Then the firing stopped, and with a yell of Allah! Allah! the Turks charged. They bore down on us like fiends, and soon I was fighting for my very life. Three more of my section fell, never to rise. We fought like tigers, sword, butt and everything. I found myself in an uncomfortable position, but Dink Watson was there to save me. Once my sword jammed tight in a Turk's equipment and I was disarmed. I was kicked in the shins and went down, a big Turk trying to gouge my eyes out. Then a limp body fell across me and Dink had again saved my life. Thrust and counter-thrust, kill or be killed. Another rifle was thrust into my hand and the fight swayed both ways, but all the time more were getting ashore. Then the enemy started to retire and at the same time his shells started to rain. High explosives and shrapnel took a heavy toll of life and the orders came along to dig in. Small entrenching tools were all we had and the ground was rock so all we could do was to get what shelter we could until a line was established. We'd gone inland about 500 yards, and the shore was strewn with dead and wounded. Listen to the full version of this episode is full of similar action, and there are some truly astounding stories to hear. Tune into episode 16. Have a hand to hold. During this show, I want to share with you just a bit of the very positive feedback I've received to illustrate the heartwarming impact the show's had on people close to some of the stories or characters covered. Um, feedback isn't frequent, but when it happens, it's like a little gem of sunshine all packaged up nicely to make your day. So right now, I'd like you to hear the feedback I've recently had from Helen Westbrook, who kindly supplied her grandfather's memoirs. It's been incredibly moving to hear Gramp's amazing memoir. You certainly capture the intensity of war and his personal struggles alongside the poignant memories such as the loss of his pal Dink. How incredible to have witnessed, actively taken part and survived such life-changing events. Perhaps these events at a young age helped shape the character of the man and the way he lived his life. It's been wonderful to listen to this narrative. With very best wishes and thanks from us all, kind regards, Helen. Thank you, Helen. OK, here's another passage from the memoir. This is later on in the Battle of Gallipoli. The Turks were getting reinforcements and we knew something was going to happen and it did. We'd straightened our line and had good reserves and the Australians came to the front line with us. It was estimated that the Turks had been reinforced by 15,000 men but this time we were on the hill and in fairly good trenches. The next day he struck. He came on in a dense black screaming mass, almost shoulder to shoulder, six to eight deep. We sprayed them with machine gun bullets and threw bombs in that packed mass. 
the rifleman tore gaps with volley after volley of rifle fire, and his wave broke. On came a second wave, and this met the same fate, and yet another wave which got through. The din of battle was deafening, the cry of men, the screech of mules, the whine of shells, and the explosion of bombs. Knives, bayonets, and trenching tools were used to rip them to pieces. But the weight of numbers told, and we were driven back to our second line of trenches. I had to leave my gun, but I had the lock, so it was useless to him. The second line held, and we rallied, and poured a hail of musketry into that charging wall of men, wounding and killing hundreds. Still we could not hold them, and we were forced to give way again. But we were not beaten, for men formed groups of resistance and charged, forcing him to waver, forcing him to stand and fight man to man, and that is where he failed. We used stones, knives, clubs and even fists as we hurled ourselves upon one another with a fury that afterwards we could not understand, and in the end Johnny was beaten to a standstill. Ooh, I'm glad I wasn't there. Well, reader, that's where we leave Gallipoli behind. I really would encourage you to read about it in the show notes and listen to the full episode because there is some amazing action and some amazing stories. There really is. And uh, Gallipoli is one of those battles that you should know about. It's part of your history. Anyway, we move on. The chap who starred in, if if starred is the right word, um, Gallipoli man, Fred Reynard. He made it safely back to England to cool his heels for 25 years before his country called upon his services again, this time as a civilian. The little boats are being mustered to go over to Dunkirk. The Navy commandeered the B, a 70-ton coastal transport boat. The engineer, Fred Reynard, a chirpy little man, said to an admiral, Beg pardon, sir, but what do your young gentlemen know about Swedish engines? I've been handling this one since 1912. The officer told him about Dunkirk and said, Have you ever been under shellfire? Ever heard of Gallipoli? Reynard shot back. He and his crew took the bee to Dunkirk with a Navy sub-lieutenant nominally in command. I just love that anecdote. That's wonderful. So, uh, here we go. We were now nearing the beach, another near miss. No one could be lucky enough to survive this holocaust. Now a welcome sight. Nine of our fighters arrived and straight into the Huns they went. Easy targets, those dive bombers. Some scattered and fled, some went down. Our planes could not remain long and back came Jerry with his unceasing bombing. But still that procession of men came down to the water's edge. There was nowhere to go. Cars, lorries and motorcycles were being sabotaged by being driven into the sea or destroyed on the beaches. A lone chestnut horse ran up and down the beach. More RAF planes arrived, one crashed on the beach, but with more of our planes what a different story it would have been. B drove at full speed onto the shore and grounded. They came towards us, some wading almost to their necks in the water, those men of the BEF and we realised that our efforts to assist them aboard with ropes and scrambling nets were futile. Waterlogged and utterly exhausted, many wounded, it was impossible for them to make such an effort. We quickly sawed the ship's ladder in two, placing a half on each side of the bow. 
The success was reward enough to see these men file aboard, some equipped with nothing but a covering of clothing, but all with the determination to live. As Meryl Streep said at the end of the ABBA movie, Do you want some more? Yeah! Everyone in the crowd shouted. Well, listener, if you want more on this occasion, look for episode 11. All these episodes are easily found at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. Just click on the big button on the home page. You can't miss it. Anyway, if you want a little bit more, here's some more Dunkirk from Captain Tom Woods and the Lady of Man. Here goes. This was from episode 10. So, listener, we heard earlier on how Major Petch and my dad had struggled through the French countryside, fighting their way back to the beaches of Bray Dune. We heard how they boarded the Lady of Man ferry ship on the East Mole, and if you've seen the Dunkirk movie, you should be able to picture that scene. The ship was captained by Tom Woods, a civilian seaman of many years, and he wasn't very far off retiring when duty called. Here's one of my favourite scenes from Tom's papers. 31st of May, 1940, and this is the day my dad had actually arrived. In fact, Dad arrived the day before. Um, we arrived at Dunkirk about 11.30am and had to wait outside the pierheads for orders to enter, which we got about noon. All the time we were waiting, there were continuous waves of German planes coming over, 40 at a time, and our fighter planes going up and intercepting them kept them from dropping any bombs close to the shipping. About 1.30pm we got a berth at the pier and commenced embarking French casualties from the French hospital. We took 1,500 casualties on board, of which 300 were stretcher cases, also 500 other French troops and 1,000 British. All the time we were at the pier, the German planes were coming over, their bombs dropping the other side of the pier about 40 yards from us, and we had seven holes made in the starboard bow close to the water line. Several soldiers marching down were killed about 30 yards ahead of us in the wharf from the shell fire. All the time from entering Dunkirk for over five hours we were under bomb and shell attack. We sailed about 5pm for Folkestone, berthing there at midnight, and disembarked all the uninjured troops, leaving Folkestone at 4.30am for Dover, arriving about 6am, where the casualties were finally disembarked. Listener, my grateful thanks to Sarah Parry for kindly supplying her granddad's purpose. Tom would later be honoured with an OBE for his gallant efforts. And these are some of the bits of feedback I had from people directly connected with Tom through the family. Um, this one was Sue Bristow. Just listen to this and it's made me cry. It was great to hear an account of someone rescued by granddad. Christine Harrison said, How emotional to hear this account. It felt like Grandad was reading those letters. It really brought this historic time to life with Grandad really in the thick of it. What an honourable man he was and all his civilian colleagues. And this is from Sarah herself. I've been quite moved myself by everyone's response, especially my Uncle James' reaction. He knew Tom well, so I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. Without wanting to sound too sentimental, you should be very proud of your work. What is so moving for me is to hear your father's account, the account of someone whose life was saved that day. 
there are so many of us who wouldn't be here had events taken a different course at numerous points in the war. Thank you so much for those reactions. It's hard to describe how it makes one feel, really. Just humble, I guess, that something I could do would be so appreciated by people directly affected by the memoir. Okay, we're leaving Dunkirk behind now. Uh, um, This is some poetry from uh, Sapper John Smith. In April 1940, John... Smith went to France with the British Expeditionary Force as a sapper in the Royal Engineers. He took his weapons of choice with him, gun, pencil and paper. It was uh, poignant poetry which he wrote uh, while he was there and when he came back because uh, it, it talks of loyalty and comradeship crafted during the London Blitz bombing. So with thanks to his daughter Rita for sending it in. Um, it's not my most recent episode but uh, who cares, and it does convey a sentiment which I think neatly ties up the end of the show. It's called Peace. In these days of trouble and war, whether we be rich or very poor, let us hope that when we pray, we pray for peace to come and stay. Why should we have to kill and slaughter someone's loving son or daughter? when we were born to love and cherish, not to take up arms to kill or perish. Little bit of feedback from Rita said, Wow, Paul, my granddaughter and I listened to your podcast and it was absolutely fantastic. I've never heard anyone read Dad's poems and you were just brilliant. Certainly made my eyes well up. Dad would be proud of what you'd written and spoken about him. Thank you so much, Rita. Rita, thank you. In case anyone's wondering how well the podcast's doing, the the stats aren't that revealing, really. Um, Apple Podcasts are about to make some changes on that front, which will be welcome. Um, but since I started, I've nearly, nearly done uh, 100,000 downloads. So uh, that's massively in excess of the number of books that have been sold. And uh, the book's doing well, but it won't buy me a second Ferrari. Having said that, it hasn't bought me a first Ferrari either. But uh, I certainly would encourage anyone who's thinking of doing podcasting to get involved and there's plenty of support available. Next episode. Well, all I can say is which one is your favourite? You choose your next episode by going to fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk and click on the big All Episodes button. Or track me down in Apple Podcasts or iTunes via World War Two and Fighting Through. Um, simply click away to hear some more great unpublished history. You do not need any special gear. If you want to comment on or share what you've heard so far, you can do so via the contact page on the website. And if you're after social media, contact feedback, subscriptions, you'll find all the links there. You might have ideas or even contributions which could appear in future shows. Even a very short anecdote from your family fighting history is very interesting. So don't be shy. For now, thank you so much for listening. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. But there's a PS. This is my closing story. When war was declared on Germany, my dad was on holiday in Devon with some pals and this is how his story began. I was on a camping holiday with three pals. Our site was on lovely farmland at Crediton in Devon, England. 
I'd never travelled so far south before, and it had been my intention to go as far as Land's End. My car was a Morris 10, registration VN9248, and it had been bought new for £187 and 10 shillings. A lot of money, then. It was a lovely, warm, sunny day in an unspoilt meadow, where wild flowers were growing in abundance and the larks hovered in the sky. I hadn't a care in the world. I'd been for a dip in the river, which ran at the bottom of the fields, and on my way back I called at the farm for fresh milk and eggs, which we'd had for breakfast. Life was wonderful. I stretched out on the grass under a scorching sun, my hand resting on my arms, thinking and listening to the wireless. Around 10am... The programme was interrupted for a news flash, and at that moment, my little world fell apart. The newsreader announced that a national emergency had been declared, and that all members of the Territorial Army were to report to their headquarters without delay, to be ready for service in two days' time. I was flabbergasted. It was 22nd of August, 1939, and a day I would never forget. Our camping holiday came to an abrupt end and we all set to, pulling the tent down and packing the car. We were soon on our way back up north, 320 miles away. Those were the days when 60 miles an hour was speeding. Drivers were not as aggressive as they are today. They loved their cars and it was indeed a joy to drive. Nobody was in a hurry to get from A to B. As Dad mentioned the car he was driving in his war diary... I put a photograph of the car on my website. In July 2010, I received an email from Mr Ian Binney asking me if I had any more information about a Morris 10 registration number VN9248. It turned out that Dad's first car, which he owned in 1936 when he was 19, had survived all these years and Ian was the present-day owner. Needless to say, I was really choked by this. My family had no idea that the car had survived, and of course without the internet, it's unlikely we would ever have found out. Ian's a vintage car enthusiast, and he'd tracked the car down by googling the registration number. He'd bought the car for his daughter's wedding day and gave me some photos of it. I'd only ever seen a black and white photograph of it, yet here it was in all its full colour glory, predictably black, but it had a green bonnet, boot and side stripes. <laughs> How good is that? He also had a sliding sunroof, something else not visible on the earlier photo. Was Dad ahead of his time with his flash motor or what? Evidently this 80-year-old car is quite a rarity in the world, but to me it's unique. So I took a three-hour trip over to Oxford from Norfolk where I live and met Ian and the car and he took me out for a spin and a grin in it and let me have a drive. Oh boy. It was a bit rickety, not very powerful. We didn't go for 30 miles an hour. It only had three gears. There was no heater and it wasn't very roomy. But do you know what, listener? It's by far the best car I've ever driven in my life. How wonderful. I've got another couple of stories about the car. Um, what I want to tell you now is that when I was a youngster, I remember Dad telling me that before the war, he used to taxi people to the seaside town of Scarborough, about 50 miles from where we lived, and he'd pick them up a week later. Uber, eat your heart out, that's all I can say. 
And of course, Don Savage, Dad's pal, whom we mentioned earlier, he'd have been in that car with Dad when they went camping to Devon together. And I had a surprise for Ian, the owner. Um, In my garage at home, I had an ancient brass foot pump for inflating car tyres, and it it still worked, um, although I didn't use it much. And I know my dad... And I also know that he bought stuff to last in those days. So I'd bet a pound to a penny that this foot pump was the one he'd originally bought for that car. Because he would never have thrown it away. So I decided the pump kind of belonged to the car and I gave it to Ian as a present. I don't know who was most chuffed. Ian for adding to the car's pedigree off or me for the choking virtuous feeling I had knowing how pleased dad would have been to see the pump repatriated and more to the point how delighted dad would have been to see that car had he still been alive today you can see the pictures of the car on the fighting through podcast website there's another ps now um this is a special note to reward any of you who stayed on to the end You may recall me talking about uh, Arthur Oxley, the lad who was blown to pieces in the Battle of Wadi Akarit, and Dad had to bury him, and he only identified him by the the identity discs they found. And Dad had left him buried under a a cairn of stones in a a very lonely place, and he, he always wondered if the body would be recovered. Well, after the war, Dad made some inquiries about Arthur's body and he was pleased to discover that the body was recovered and uh, it was reinterred in the Sfax Cemetery in Tunisia and uh, what a lovely end to that particular tale and I think a very nice ending to the show on a very positive note so this is me saying Wishing you all well. Hope to see you again soon. I'm Paul Shale saying bye-bye now.